After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. So there was a time when I really hoped for the word meta to enter the culture the way of course some words do. Um, because I find it so hard to translate, so hard to really, really describe. Uh, the common translation is loving kindness. It is that sense of deeply knowing our lives are connected. We have something to do with one another. It doesn't mean we like somebody, um, but there is that deep knowing. An example that I, I tend to use a lot comes from my friend Bob Thurman. Uh, he's very New York. He says, imagine you're on a subway. And these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are in that subway car are going to be together forever. <laughs> he says, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because you necessarily like them or you approve of them in any way, but you know you're going to be together forever. So guess what? There's a deep truth to that. Our lives have something to do with one another. And the acknowledgement of that is the sense of metta. Loving kindness is sort of an odd phrase, isn't it? Because except for an unusual place, perhaps, like Maui. You know, you wouldn't necessarily be in a cafe and hear people at the next table talking about loving kindness. So... Uh, my concern is that that might make the quality itself seem sort of arcane and removed from day-to-day -day life and precious in the negative sense of, of the word instead of a really vital, alive sense of, of connection. Our lives have something to do with one another. Some people 
including Bob, actually, as a scholar, as a translator, really urge just using the word love. You know, he'll, he'll kind of say, like, don't be so timid. Just say love. That's what you actually mean. Uh, but that I find very complex, isn't it? Because we can use the word love in so many different ways. Like, what does it mean, actually, when we're saying that? You know, why does Sai Ramdas feel the need to qualify it as unconditional love? It's because sometimes when we talk about love, we really frankly mean a medium of exchange. Like, I will love you as long as you love me in return, as long as the following 15 conditions are met. And once I was teaching somewhere, probably New York, and someone in the room didn't like that, and they called out only 15 conditions, you know? What about the rest? So I will love you as long as, you know, 150 conditions are met. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. You know, we know that state quite well. And we also know its frailty, its fragility, its vulnerability. So it's not really what we mean by, by metta which can sustain us, can uphold us, can give us a sense of resiliency, that kind of vaster connection, no matter what situation we might be in. Sometimes we use the word love, and it really um, is a kind of sentimentality. Uh, it's often used that way, right? And um, I remember years ago, I read... Uh, an interview with a former beauty queen. She was like Ms. Kentucky of many, many years ago. So like, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, something like that after her reign. I read this interview with her. And she's at, she was asked, what do you have to say about life? And she said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. You know, so it's like 30 or 40 years just smiling for the camera, completely vacuous, disconnected to any inner reality, whatever it it might have been, and that can be what comes to mind <laughs> when we hear that, that word, like repressing more difficult feelings and trying to deny them and, and somehow pretend we're in a, a space that, that we're actually not. And so metta really doesn't mean any of that. The closest literal translation is friendship. So it's a sense of friendship with ourselves and with all beings, but we also define friendship in different ways, right? And so um, I, I keep coming back to connection. It's just this deep knowing that our lives are, are connected. And the corollary to that is that everybody counts. Everybody matters. We're not going to like everybody. We're not going to take everybody home with us. We're not going to give everybody what they want. But everybody matters in some way. So I was teaching um, in Washington, D.C., as I, I fairly often do, and uh, the rental facility for that particular uh, day-long, series of day-long workshops was an elementary school which had the rules of kindness of that school on these big pieces of paper all along the corridors. So whenever we took a break or we were doing walking meditation, which we're going to do some of today, um, instead of actually doing the meditation, we'd all kind of stand there and read the rules of kindness because they were just so cool. And they included things like don't hurt anyone on the inside or on the outside. 
But my very, very favorite rule of kindness was everybody gets to play. Like, everybody gets to play. Not everybody is your best friend, but everybody gets to play. So that's kind of the sensibility of, of loving kindness. Everybody counts. Everybody matters, including oneself. The companion quality to that is compassion. So compassion, some people define compassion as uh, love which recognizes suffering or adversity. Um, <laughs> I just said that for you, Rebecca. Uh, love which recognizes adversity or suffering. And it's a kind of tenderness, uh, that state of compassion, which resonates and responds. So it's not just sensing a, a difficult situation or likely painful situation, but it's an ability to move toward. And in moving toward, also not being engulfed, right? It, it's having some sense of perspective or, or wisdom or equanimity, we would say, balance, the balance that's born of wisdom, which is like perspective that uh, kind of keeps us going in that, in that state of compassion so that we don't get engulfed, we don't get overwhelmed. Um, we don't define somebody perhaps only as their suffering, including ourselves, right? Our condition, our problem, our dilemma. But understand there's also a bigger reality. I think Ramdas talked about this uh, the first night we were here together when he also talked about getting over self-pity, right, in order to have like that bigger sense and ability to give. So in a lot of ways, um, the examples of these, of loving kindness or metta and compassion, uh, they're often talked about as practices of generosity. It is gift-giving. It's offering. You know, why do we take the time with a stranger to listen rather than be just thinking about the email we need to send or where we'd rather be. You know, how do we actually arrive to uh, not try to fix it for somebody, perhaps, but be there and uh, be a real presence and an opening, a, a sense of open space with that person who's in trouble? How do we respond differently when we've made a mistake or we need to bounce back, we need some kind of resiliency. These are all examples of like a generosity of the spirit. And I really, I'm intrigued by kind of the momentary nature sometimes of transformation. It's like we can get there and we lose it, but we can get back there. Right? All is not lost when we've gone far, far away, when we've um, put a big price tag on our, our presence or our attention. We can realize that. We can, we can make that flip. And, and those moments when we really arrive and we, we are listening and we're open and we care, uh, they're not inconsequential because they don't last. You know, sometimes we think, well, I blew it, forget that connection or friendship or whatever it is, but we can come back. You know, that's like the essential teaching is like we can renew, we can return, we can start over. I'm telling you, this is work to be done, you know, in that process. 
there's no doubt, but um, that's a possibility. And somebody asked me why I said yesterday that I hardly ever use the word forgiveness. Um, so this is a feat of mindfulness. I remembered that. <laughs> so um, the reason, it's not that I have anything against forgiveness, <laughs> really. Um, it's just that word is tremendously loaded for us and has all kinds of possible associations and uh, is very difficult, I think, to understand from within and be able to differentiate that state from any other state that might kind of resemble it on the surface but be really very different when we look. And, and all of these very positive uplifting, joyous qualities are looked at in that light. Like, what can masquerade as this? What can we fall into that's what's classically called the near enemy? On the surface, it looks the same, but when we really look, whoa, that's different. Um, so I think forgiveness has a lot of near enemies. And as my friend Sylvia Borstein would say uh, in a cautionary note, she'd say, forgiveness is not amnesia. You know, it doesn't mean that what happened didn't happen. It doesn't mean it didn't matter or doesn't still matter. It's not any of that. Uh, but in the Buddhist teaching, it's something along these lines of recognizing the potential for change, our own and others. It's not that someone has changed. It's not that we know that. But there's always that possibility, that sensibility. Um, it's also recognizing if it's someone else, um, who's hurt us in some way that we can give over an awful lot of our life's energy to somebody else. And we might well want to recapture that and feel whole and not so uh, bound into someone else's negativity. When it's ourselves, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Um, there's this very interesting distinction in the Buddhist psychology between what we might call remorse and what we might call guilt. It's like, you know, also in reference to what we were talking about yesterday or the day before, you know, there's, um, when we've acted in a way that's out of harmony, it hurts us, even if we don't feel the hurt. At the time, the Buddha said, I think really beautifully, he said, if you really loved yourself, you'd never harm another. If you really loved yourself, you'd never harm another because we have such a small, meager idea of what a human life can be and what we're capable of. But if we really loved ourselves, we would never harm another because it just harms us. It just brings us down. And we feel a lot of that through the process of introspection. But there's a difference between recognizing like we've acted out of harmony, feeling the pain of that, acknowledging that, in effect, forgiving ourselves and moving on in a really energized way. You know, like, I don't need to go there again. Maybe I learned some things. And then there's a distinction between that and what is in, the, in that psychological system called guilt, where we just go over and 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 over a few more times. The thing we did or the thing we said. And it's like our whole sense of who we are and all that will ever be just collapses around that. And that doesn't serve anybody because we, we end up exhausted, um, depleted, discouraged, demoralized. We don't have a whole bunch of energy to move on and make a difference or, or be different. And so uh, it's an intricate 
powerful exploration. Like, how do I change? How, how have I, you know, been able to move on in a better way? Is it by, you know, one more recitation of that terrible thing I did? Or uh, is it something else? And what is that something else? And what are the components of it? And so it's very personal. You know, that's why the idea of forgiveness as kind of compulsory is sort of off-putting, I think. It's like... Um, too, too static uh, a notion, you know, that there is this one particular thing and this is what it means, whereas uh, it's a really intricate, uh, movable, uh, very powerful process, which uh, does not mean amnesia and it doesn't mean we pretend, no, it doesn't matter. Um, no, it's something else altogether that is based on compassion for ourselves as, as well as for others. So I, you know, because it takes a whole huge long time to try to explore it, uh, I don't tend to use the word because it's not that easy. Um, I had a really funny experience. In, in the Buddhist monastic system, often there's almost like a ceremony of forgiveness uh, as a way of saying goodbye and, you know, as I said earlier, like at my own center, the Insight Meditation Society in, in Massachusetts, uh, we brought this Burmese meditation teacher, Saida Upandita, to teach a three-month retreat in 1984. And um, uh, there's a lot of etiquette and protocol and, and just kind of basic rules in taking care of a monk um, or nun. And, uh, you know... They don't eat afternoon, and there's a certain way of offering food, and there's only certain places they can sleep, and they don't handle money. So if you've got a limo picking them up in Boston and they need to have a credit card, you're out of luck. You know, I mean, there's just a lot of, of stuff to, to make it all work. And, uh, and Saida Upandita came to America. That was his first trip to America. And as I've maybe also made some reference to, you know, in, in those cultures... Um, the nature of the teacher-student relationship uh, is a very traditional culture. You know, so if, if your meditation teacher, for example, s makes a suggestion to you about your practice, you don't really say, show me why, <laughs> or I don't think so, <laughs> or prove it, you know. But here we do, of course, right? So Upandita uh, came to America, never having been here before, and I was sitting that retreat. I was I was meditating. It's a silent retreat, but I could just sense there was a lot going on. That you know he was uh, confronted by a lot of surpri things surprising to him uh, in the way people were relating to him, and I could tell that the organization, even though it's my own. Um, was struggling to accommodate his needs. Because I, I noticed for one thing, like, he's moving all the time. He's, like, sleeping in a different place, you know? Like, week after week, why is that? Or at one point, they built a wall in this corridor. And I thought, that's, like, the oddest thing. You know, I went up the stairs, and suddenly there's a wall. Uh, <laughs> I thought, what's that about? You know, and it was all trying to come to terms with the rules. So anyway, I could just tell uh, there was a lot going on. So at the end of three months... Um, 
where I'd been, you know, just a silent, med- I mean, silent um, between ourselves talking to him, but uh, meditator for all those months. He gets up to say goodbye. It's the last session, and he says, he starts out with, uh, if I've hurt or harmed you in any way, knowingly or unknowingly, I ask your forgiveness. And if you have hurt or harmed me, knowingly or unknowingly, I forgive you. And it was like such a moment, you know? And uh, by then I'd found out what was going on, you know, it was the last day. And, and I thought, wow, um, like even though he and I had had a tremendous relationship and he was enormously important for me as a teacher, even in the first three months, I had such a sense of relief inside. I thought, wow, I don't have, should I meet him again? Um, I don't have to approach him really timidly thinking, oh, he's going to look at me and think, oh, you're the one who started that center. <laughs> you know, where they don't even know how to treat a Buddhist monk. Nor would I look at him and think, oh, well, you're the one who came to America. <laughs> no idea what to expect. You know, I could have prepared. Um, <laughs> and that we could actually meet. And it could be like a free moment, right? Okay, here we are now without such a sense of all that accumulated baggage. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. A year later, I went to Nepal to sit with him for a month and then three months in Burma, which is where I began my loving kindness practice. You know, so, so the idea of forgiveness there um, has that sense of, okay, I want to be here now. Uh, is there something I can let go of, not to damage myself or anybody else, but so they don't have that sense of like constant accumulation of something else. Can there be something really new here? So uh, I love all of these concepts because they're not what they seem. You know, they can seem so uh, superficial or gooey or something. But but when you actually look, it's it's such a tremendous challenge to us and all the assumptions that we make about happiness, about strength, about love. Um, about ourselves, about others, about it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know, all of those things. Um, And so here we are, you know, with that opportunity to make that kind of exploration. Why do we? All kinds of reasons. Uh, Sometimes it is adversity. It just is suffering. It's like, whoa, whoa. I was just kind of going along, and I was fine, and everything was fine. And then there's this, which is like a jolt to our system. And sometimes it's inspiration. Uh, We meet someone. We have a kind of contact. Uh, uh, The example that's used sometimes is like you're sitting in this uh, dark and closed room, and the door's shut, and something happens. And like the door just swings open, and you go, whoa. It's a bigger world than I had ever thought or imagined. And sometimes that is. It's, it's the ability um, or it's the uh, circumstance. You know, you encounter somebody, you encounter something, a place, a work of art, a piece of music, whatever it is. It's like, whoa, look at that. It's, it's a bigger world than, than I might have imagined. And from that moment of, of inspiration or when it's suffering, it's like the door blowing open, there is the opportunity to make it real, 
to embody it, to live it, to, you know, as Ramda said, uh, move from seeing love to being love. And when I added that's that's something we can do, I don't really think that's a far off, nearly impossible goal, but likely we can only do it for a few moments. And then we forget, but that's okay because we can remember and we can start over. We can start over and we can start over. And that's what what practice is, is actually considered to be, is that amazing opportunity to breathe life into something instead of just hold it uh, as a kind of abstract value. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.